Hello and welcome to the 73 Seconds Podcast. This is a show for anyone committed to ending sexual violence, all about how to support survivors and eradicate violence. And on this episode, we talked with our community partner, Dean Adams, from the Lake County Veterans and Family Services Foundation. Listen in as we talk about suicide prevention for veterans, conversations around mental health, military sexual trauma, and so much more. I had originally thought to talk about veterans issues because I, well, I'm married to a veteran. I know that veterans issues are something that are always pressing. Um, My specialty for my doctoral dissertation is also in the military sector. So yeah, I just really wanted to have the conversation because I think that especially with the social isolation that's happening uh, around the pandemic. It's just not getting any better. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah. So, to start, <laughs> uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the Lake County Veterans and Family Services Foundation, how it began, and what services and programming you have. You bet. Uh, well, my name is Dean Adams. Hello. Um, I'm the Operations and Program Manager for the Lake County Veterans and Family Services Foundation out of Praise Lake, Illinois. You know, the, the history is somewhat convoluted, uh, but in short, we were founded about 12 years ago as a SAMHSA grant, federal money, mm-hmm. ended up kind of diverging from that path a couple of years ago in order to be completely privately funded. Uh, so, you know, mo- most veterans organizations in the area are, you know, receiving government money, money from the state, money from federal. We operate completely, completely independently which allows us to be flexible and fast and work with anybody regardless of discharge status without having to worry about federal funding. Uh, So, you know, we work with folks with other than honorable, less than ideal discharge characteristics. For those of us who aren't familiar with military benefits, maybe, um, you know, there are several characterizations of discharge that you can pick up when you leave the military. And typically only, you know, honorable or general are going to be, those are like the kind of the top two discharge characterizations, are going to let you be eligible for federal benefits. So if you have an other than honorable, dishonorable, you know, it's a lot of times tougher for people to find help, and that's where we step in to kind of help those guys that fall through the cracks. Uh, So we provide peer support. We're all in recovery ourselves from PTSD, substance abuse, or both often. And peer support, limited financial assistance, public awareness events, you know, we speak at schools, we also do the fundraisers, awareness type things, but zero cost, completely confidential, any veteran or family member of a veteran walks in the door, they're going to be eligible for our services. So do you see a lot of veterans pre-9-11 because it's more difficult to get services for veterans who aren't post-9-11? I would say that we see a lot more veterans pre-9-11 simply because the the ability for them to navigate the benefits landscape is on average a little bit lower than your younger vets. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we see, you know, our, our phone rings a lot more from folks that are pre-9-11 than post, just because a lot of the things that we end up directing folks towards, you know, again, not to overgeneralize here, but for the most part, you know, the younger vets can kind of locate those resources themselves and start, you know, an inroad themselves. Whereas pre-9-11 vets, we get calls from them, how do I even start this? Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that everyone who comes to receive services has some level of previous substance use or mental health PTSD concern. How would you factor in suicide into that? Or 
how does the thought of suicide or suicidal ideation factor into the work that you do? Well, it's obviously a question that we ask everybody. And this is, you know, again, coming from my background, I was a, I was a medic in the Army, and before that I was an EMT in the civilian world. Um, so, you know, that, hey, are you thinking about hurting yourself or anybody else? I mean, that question just kind of comes naturally to me. You know, and also understanding that just asking about suicide, and this is fairly basic mental health first aid stuff, right? Just asking about suicide does not increase somebody's chances of committing suicide. It doesn't put that idea in their brain. Uh, so not being afraid to ask the question mm-hmm. is super important, but also not overreacting because a lot of these, you know, veterans, including myself, yeah, sure, I've had suicidal ideation. I've thought about killing myself, but that's not the same as being suicidal. Right. And that can, But that continuum is tricky. It's very difficult, you know, basically you're taking somebody at their word, like, well, thank you for being honest about, you know, your thoughts of killing yourself and you're stable now. Okay, well, when does that change, you know? So it's very tricky. Um, Mm -hmm. But it it is, to answer your question in a roundabout way, how does it factor in? It is the first thing that I think of when I deal with anybody that comes in for peer support. Mm -hmm. It is the first question on my mind. Is this person a danger to themselves or to anyone else? Does that answer your question? Yeah. And I mean, I, I just like, I think about the, the stats around, what is it? Every 22 seconds? Mm-hmm. Um, a, a suicide or a veteran suicide? A veteran, a veteran suicide. suicide. 22 a day. 22 a day. Correct. At least that was the, that's the data as of, I believe, 2011. Oh, maybe really? 2014, yeah. Well, and we believe it's actually come down a little bit, but the number 22 resonates so strongly and has mm-hmm. been, you know, in the public consciousness for so long that. That's what we stick to for a lot mm-hmm. of our awareness campaign materials. But yes, uh, as of 2011, we were losing 22 veterans a day to suicide. Wow. I think that people don't really know how silently a lot of veterans suffer. Well, it's it's the conditioning. You know, it's... And, and, and that's not to say that it is entirely, you know, somebody else conditioned me to be this way. It's also your mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're in the service, you just kind of, okay, maybe I'm not doing so hot, but if I say something, I'm not going to be mission ready. You know, I'm not going to be able to, I'm not going to be able to go with my team to wherever we're going in the next couple of months. Um, and, you know, if I have to put my hand up and go see somebody, that means that maybe I'm not deployable. Yeah. And for, at least for me, again, I can only speak from my experience. That was, that was it. That was why I was there. You know, if I'm not deployable, what am I even doing? That's when you start to think about, you know, maybe, oh God, I am useless. That's when the suicidal ideation yeah. starts. So like seeking help. Obviously, it's what you got to do. I had to be command mandated personally. Like they made me go, because um, they're like, "Yeah, man, you're, you're not doing so hot. You're going to behavioral health. It's just what you're conditioned to do, and it's just the course of action that makes most sense. At least for me, it's just to deal with it. You know, who else needs to deal with this stuff? I don't. I don't need to bring it up to anybody that I care about. We don't need to hear about these stories. Um, so it's just kind of, it's just, it's just what I did. Mm-hmm. And what I still do sometimes, I need to get my oil checked every so often, you know, being in a job where I offer peer support, mm-hmm. it's easy for me to think of that as my continued therapy, but it's not. Like, I still need to go in and talk. I still need to get my oil checked, like I said, see my therapist. You know, you spend all day kind of going over your shared traumas with mm-hmm. people, and it's, um, it can wear you out if you're not vigilant. Oh, that resonates with me. <laughs> like, just as a therapist. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Because we're both there. I mean, that's what we do. So. Yeah, you know, it's, and then, you know, not being a clinician, I'm not a therapist. I'm a peer support specialist. You know, an entirely different echelon of care. You know, yeah. we're talking like first responder versus doctor. But 
Yeah, that's something that impre- was impressed on me very strongly when I started in the field about a year ago. Um, is hey, make, make sure that you're taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and again, it's, I take things back to EMS a lot just because that's where my, my world experience was before yeah. moving over to nonprofits. And, you know, you can't help anybody out if you're not okay yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even though that's what you want to do and that's what you're here to do, it's, uh, yeah. Anyway, that, that concludes my thoughts on the matter. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It took me a long time to understand just the just the acronyms just so that my husband didn't have to explain everything to me oh it's absolutely its own language i mean mm-hmm. it's every subculture has its own language the military one is a little bit more intense than most yeah so it's learning acronyms and le- so it's so i come at this from like a i i have experience understanding how hard it is for someone that like i live with right to feel comfortable enough to share things with me because every time he said anything, I had to be like, there were like 12 words that I did not understand. Can you please explain them to me? And it took us, what, five years now for us to be like, okay, he can tell me a story. I can understand all of the things that he said. And then I can respond knowing all the things that he said and have actual dialogue about it. It took that long. So for people who don't know the linguistic part of it, it's so hard to be able to just provide that support in the same way because if you didn't serve, you just don't know. Like, you, right. you just don't know. So And it's, and it's difficult, you know, for, for those... And I've been out for five years now. I got out in 2016, so I've had plenty of time to... You know, I use all these terms like deprogram and condition. You know, it's not it's not as horrible as all that. You know, it's it's these are cult words that I'm using. But that's not that's not how I mean. Them. We love uh, we love cult words. Yes, oh, fascinating. <laughs> but uh, so it, I've, I've had a little bit of time to deprogram, but it's it's taken that much time. You know, despite actively trying in the military to like you know act like a regular civilian when I wasn't in uniform and working, um, it, it takes that amount of time for you to remember that everybody that you talk to now doesn't have the background that you do. So, oh, yeah, quick deployment here, then came back, ripped to ripped Toa, then a month, and then, like, well, okay, is that a lot? Like, you, you deployed three times in two years, what does that even mean? Like, where'd you go, right? Um, so it's, yeah, the, uh, the struggle is real, and it's, it's another one of those barriers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's another thing that prevents us from talking about it, because, well, I'm going to have to explain, and this is something that I deal with personally, because... I had a fairly obscure job in the Army that takes a little bit of explaining, uh, and... Sometimes I just don't feel like doing that. <laughs> so, yeah. like, oh, what'd you do in Honduras? Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Like a lot of things. All right, have you ever heard of civil affairs? Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the basics. Yeah. But it's, so, yeah, it's, I, I feel that is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's that, that barrier to communication is definitely two ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as you guys were talking. You have expert in this topic. You have experience. You have experience with your husband and, like, learning the lingo. And then I'm over here sibling with, like, no knowledge about it. That doesn't mean that it's not applicable. I get on this horse all the time. <laughs> I'm sorry. You're going to you're gonna have to bear with me for a moment while I talk about this. Um, that, that barrier, that barrier that you're experiencing right now is something that I want to break down. Mm-hmm. Not, not, you know, not talking about you specifically. <laughs> Just in general, in the world, yeah. right? Because I believe that it is, it's harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it ties into, you know, don't get me wrong, 
served in the military, great, it's happy, good, good for you. I understand that people want to say thank you, but you know, stuff like that, I, I appreciate the sentiment, but putting us on a pedestal isn't super helpful either. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an experience that we chose to have. And I respect that we made that choice, but it doesn't make us anything special. We put on a uniform for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Great. And that, you know, oh man, I can't even imagine what that must have been like. That makes it harder for mm-hmm. us to explain it. Yeah. It really does. Um, because, it, you know, did, can you really not imagine? Or has somebody never really tried to explain it to you? Or are you not interested in hearing about it? It's one of the three. Because mm-hmm. I believe you can understand. Mm-hmm. Everybody's had bad days. Now, granted, maybe not everybody's had, you know, bombs landing next to them, but that doesn't mean that you can't relate to the high stress of the incident. And that doesn't mean that, you know, your bad day in the civilian world is any less valid than my bad day in Afghanistan, right? So, yeah, that's, uh, like I said, I get on this horse a lot. <laughs> um, I believe that that barrier can be broken down, but I want to mm-hmm. do it. No, I agree with you. I think it can be. Yeah. It's just, well, I don't know how. <laughs> but hopefully we'll get there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think what you said, too, in there is not putting veterans on a pedestal, Mm -hmm. because I think that just furthers the barrier, and that, like, we can't reach, like, civilians can't reach out to the pedestals, but then also from the veterans' point of view, like, they can't connect down with those who aren't on the pedestal, right? right? So it's like the double-edged sword. Right. It's, you know, you know, I have to uphold this ideal of, Mm -hmm. like, you know, I was a tough soldier, and everything was fine, and wow, good job in that war, or whatever. You know, whereas we're just people, mm-hmm. you know, it's it, it, being in the army or being in the Navy or Air Force, Coast Guard, I mean, any branch, obviously, I don't want to be like branchist here, but, um, the army though, I mean, I, was, it, it, I, can, only speak to, <laughs> I, can, I can only speak to my experience, um, you know, so being in the army, I apologize to anyone who's not in the army, <laughs> being, in the, being in the army in particular, you know, it's, it's a, it's a diaspora, it really is a, a cross-section of American society mm-hmm. and even my weird little corner of it I got a good taste of that and it really I mean it's just it's all kinds of people that just put a flag on their shoulder mm-hmm. how are the current conversations around mental health helping or failing our veterans oh that is a tricky question isn't it um, are we because we're talking veterans we're talking current active duty right and I would almost want to add like a piece in that question too about how does the like desire to not necessarily to get political, but to remove troops from overseas and what happened in the, over the summer, how does that necessarily play into it as well? Cause I feel like that, you know, especially vets who have been overseas in this war that's been 20 years long, I feel like there's a, a, a connection there that they just saw, I don't know, shatter. Personally, yes, I've had a hard time with that. And also, you know, aside from the political thing, dodging political landmines is my specialty. Oh, perfect. So, Fantastic. Yeah, we'll be fine. <clears throat> um, it's, it's, that's a necessity in the field that I work in. Um, so, let's see. How is... The, so, the original question is, mm-hmm. current conversations around mental health helping or failing our veterans? Um, so, we'll take active duty to the side for an instant, for a moment, and just talk about veterans. I believe that current conversations around mental health are helping our veterans overall, because there is no denying that while a stigma still exists 
in the general population, it has decreased. Now, at this, it's a double-edged sword, just like just about anything else, right? Because mm -hmm. now it's kind of expected, like, oh, you're in Afghanistan, man, are you all messed up? You have PTSD. And like, I mean, for me, I'm just like, yes. <laughs> but um, Not everyone's okay with that. Right. But, but it's, it kind of becomes like another stereotype, right? You've either got like you're, you're on this pedestal American hero or you've mm -hmm. got this messed up, broken human being mm -hmm. and there's really no like in between. So, man, that's a tricky, loaded, long question. Um, but in general, I believe that society's reduction of the stigma has led to a more it makes it i believe that it makes it easier for some people to reach out for help for the first time which is often mm -hmm. the hardest I, I think that it is easier for veterans now to say hey i need some help than it has been at any point in the past mm -hmm. i still think there's a long way to go does that answer your question yeah i think so okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> the first part my part <laughs> christine's got mm. <laughs> That's right. Sorry. Sorry, the so, second part. So no, we're gonna talk about Afghanistan also, which um, I, ju I just feel like this. You're right when you say you made this choice to go there, right? You made this choice to enlist. You made this choice, and so you make the choice thinking that the outcome is going to be freedom or what we have mm -hmm. for others, or that you are helping others. And then the things that we're seeing <clears throat> on the media over the over the past summer um, do not reflect that. And then it's very, I can only imagine how damaging to see something that you thought that you were working towards not necessarily end up that way. That's an excellent way of phrasing it. Um, because that's exactly kind of the mindset that I had. Uh, you know, when we were over there again, we work with civil and military leadership, basically trying to bring them together in order to reduce regional vulnerability to coercion or co-option by terrorists but it, in Afghanistan or by organizations that we deem as, you know, destabilizers. Uh, Central America, same deal, but um, with drug trafficking organizations, transnational organized crime. Uh, and the reason that I preface with that is because it gave me a unique perspective on watching the Jiroa, which is the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, the government that we put into place over there, watching it crumble um, as rapidly as it did. And I was tied in, you know, and I haven't been in Afghanistan since 2013, so, you know, I don't know what the situation is exactly like over there, and I can't even really talk about the situation outside of where I was in Afghanistan, mm -hmm. which was way out west next to Iran. Um, but we worked primarily, like one of our big initiatives over there was women's rights, specifically getting women into the workforce. You know, one of our projects was building a new dorm for the Herat Women's University, um, food processing centers, trying to reduce the stigma around widows, trying to get them back into the workplace while also, you know, providing something useful for their community. You know, it's in the place where I was in Afghanistan, 10 years into the, you know, American for lack of a better word. Um, you know, it wasn't unusual for me to be hanging out at this university pulling security, you know, indoors, and for a female Afghan student to just come up and start practicing English with me. You know? Mm -hmm. And uh, my heart breaks for them. Because I don't know what became of any of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, 20 years of being told, hey, there's hope. 
you know, you're moving towards something like a Western democracy, which that's a whole other issue that we can get into in a minute, if you'd like, about <coughs> Afghanistan. But I mean, I'm open uh, to it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's... And, and well, all that effort that you put in and that you grow attached to the people. I mean, you just do. Like, a, the chunk of my heart is going to be forever in that place. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult to think about. Um, so, again, speaking personally, yes, watching the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan collapse as quickly as it did was, was hard. But professionally also, you know, we had an uptick of people calling, Vietnam vets in particular, saying, hey, this is bringing back flashbacks for me, man. This is like Saigon, mm-hmm. which is something that I hadn't thought, but, you know, it's, you know, we've lost both those wars. So, you know, it totally makes sense. So, you know, kind of the, 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 the repercussions are not just from people that were in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's just about everybody that's participated in a foreign war. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I can only speak anecdotally and from my experience, but... People are having a hard time with it. Mm-hmm. We have also, I mean, again, this is anecdotally in Lake County, uh, veteran suicide did a, did do a quick uptick. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, and I don't want to get them wrong, and I also cannot necessarily attribute it to mm-hmm. this, but coincidentally, yeah, there, there, there was a slight uptick in the county um, mm-hmm. right after the fall of Afghanistan. Mm. It was dark days. Yeah. Still is. I mean, really, they're they're in trouble over there. <laughs> yeah, I am hearing though that um, the military is feminist. Yeah, that's what I heard. Okay, <laughs> all right. I just wanted to. <clears throat> the military is feminist. Yeah, I mean that. I, that's how I'm hearing it, right? That like, I think people make assumptions politically, right, about the military in general, and it's really. I don't really feel like it's like that. I feel like. The military does good things. And I think that there's a lot of people that just assume, like, you want to go into the military because you want to, like, blow things up or you want to whatever. It's like, no, there's a lot of really amazing work that doesn't get put on the headlines because that's not interesting to people. Right. As a civil affairs medical sergeant, my job was the health and safety of my team and the area that we were working. You know, healthcare assessments. How can we get these people better healthcare? What's their drinking water situation like, you know? And so the, it is changing, but I see that almost as a necessary, oh, here we go into the military terminology again. It's almost a necessary outgrowth of coin, which is counterinsurgency operations, right? Which is the types of war that we've been fighting for the past 50 years. Um, is there ever going to be a big force-on-force conflict again? I hope not. Right. But you win, a, you win these smaller engagements, these low-intensity, long-term counterinsurgencies. You win them with civil affairs type things, not with blowing everybody up. Right. Um, if they can be one at all, which we can talk about in detail whenever you care to. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I... Uh, the military is feminist. Interesting. I mean, I don't think many people say that. But I just no, feel... No, that's a common thought. No, but I just feel like... <laughs> that was that was a role that was that was that was a goal of what was happening was making sure that oppression was no longer placed on the people that were marginalized oh certainly yeah and that's i mean i'd like to think that that's our objective anytime we go anywhere right um but it's a very interesting take on i think the people just have this idea of the military and i in, in working on my dissertation, I was learning that 
a lot of people decide to enlist in the military because it's a lineage thing or like your family's in the military or there's a larger population of people who enlist in the military from the South because there's a lot of installations. And so if it's part of your every day, just I guess like maybe it is around here, right? Because there's a huge installation here. Um, you see it more, you're around it more and maybe you think about it more. Um, but for the rest of us, we don't. So. Yeah. I need a caveat too. You know, yeah. I, I'm making it sound like we were over there doing things altruistically. Granted, although we did get to help a lot of people along the way, it was always very clear from the top down that the reason we were there was to further American hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. We are there to further American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we actually help people along the way is incidental. Mm -hmm. I just happen to be in a place where we could help people. <laughs> so, <laughs> so not everybody gets to have your experience. Right. So I, I was very lucky, very lucky mm -hmm. to be able to <laughs> mostly feel good projects in furtherance of that goal and yeah not everybody's so fortunate mm -hmm. yeah i think that's really interesting too that it is important to to tell people that every single military experience is completely different yes uh, that is that is super important not only i mean super important if i get nothing else across during this it's that nobody has the same experience in the military yeah no two experiences are alike depending on the branch I mean, your job. Yeah. What's it like in the Army? I couldn't tell you. I could tell you what it was like in my little chunk of the Army back in 2015. I mean, even your boot camp experience yes. is going to vary greatly. Yeah, everything. Start to finish. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, trauma is a huge factor in a lot of the overseas deployments. Not all, but a lot. Um and again, obviously, we work for a sexual trauma or a crisis center uh, that focuses on sexual trauma. And there is a lot of sexual trauma in the military. And I don't know if you have had experience working with people who have talked about this. Um, do you have thoughts about the military sexual trauma? We'll start there in this kind of... Do I have thoughts about military sexual trauma? Um, I mean, yes. <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> is, uh, thoughts that include it is too prevalent. Um, it is probably too leniently punished on the whole. Um, I guess we can talk about the uniform code of military justice versus civilian justice. Um, again, you know, just something that military folks kind of take for granted of UCMJ. You know, you get in trouble on post. You answer to your commander. You know, you don't necessarily answer to a law enforcement agency. They, they pick you up, and I, I myself was, in fact, arrested one time on post, and you know what? I got picked up by my first sergeant, and he yelled at me, and then I got counseling, and fine. Um, whereas, you know, it was, it was for public intoxication right after Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, and I, and I got a slap on the wrist, and I got 15 days extra duty and 15 days confinement to post. Didn't get reduction in rank, but... If I had done that in the civilian world, things would have been a lot more severe, um, as opposed to just you know getting wasted and making a ruckus in the barracks, right? Um, unfortunately, the same thing seems to apply with sexual assaults. Hmm. Um, now, I am not a uniform code of military justice expert, uh, but prosecution of this sort of, of, of military sexual assault often 
um, unless it goes to like a general court martial, you know, will fall on the commander's discretion. And so we're talking about, you know, a lieutenant colonel maybe in his or her, you know, late thirties, just making that decision. As to what the punishment is? Yeah, as to what the punishment is, how it's going to be handled. And again, maybe things are different from when I was in, um, you know, I got out in 2015, 2016, but, you know, something doesn't necessarily get reported to the military police or, you know, it's, it's there's a lot of discretion that the, the battalion slash brigade commanders have over what happens to troops that mess up under their command. Now, there's been talk recently of legislation to make all sexual assault cases be independent Invest, independently investigated by like CID, which is Criminal Investigation Division of the Military Police or whoever, NCIS for the Navy, uh, which would remove the investigation entirely from the commander's overview, I guess, or purview. Um, that would be interesting. Uh, I believe that it is necessary. Mm. Not to say that you know these commanders have you know ill intent; they're just not qualified. Well, right, and there's well, and there's a there's a bias you can't. Mm-hmm. get out of right it's your unit you, you don't want to make it look too terrible by saying hey you know we have this crazy but it's just it's bad news all right mm-hmm. the, 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 that 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 system under the ucmj the in my opinion again commander has entirely too much authority did that answer your question yeah okay. i well and i think you answered the next one too which was what changes should be made and it's just taking it completely out of the commander's hands. Yeah, your chain of command, so they, I, I don't believe they should be involved in that at all. And maybe there's a, again, you know, I got out as a sergeant, E5 type, not particularly high ranking. <laughs> so, you know, maybe there's something that I'm missing. You know, maybe there's something that I don't understand as to why, you know, this UCMJ authority has to re- reside with the commander no matter what, and, you know, even if it's a sex crime, but I don't know. Well, and I think about it the same way that I think about the way Title IX works right now, which for higher ed, the way it sits right now anyway, that the investigation happens internally. Well, if you're a higher education institution... Of course you're not. <laughs> you don't... <laughs> right, right. You don't want to be like, who just so you know, we have a lot of sexual violence here. Yeah. Okay. So the way in which you would approach things is inherently biased. Yeah. Right. And it's not saying like people are are bad, but it's like you're a bias is a bias, right? And you have to own that and recognize that it's not beneficial to take that upon yourself when you have feelings one way or the other. Or, you know, again, you can cut this if you need to, but like a religious institution investigating itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Oh, I'm sure this will be fine. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like I said, cut that if you need to. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> um there was a whole story that we did that was talking of that I talked about Merkins. Oh yeah. So I don't like the the, the film prop thing, the costume accessory. Like, correct. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <Okay>. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I've never heard of it that way, and I that's much more tactful than what I said. It it's, it's friendly language. I just called it a crotch wig. So <laughs> that just that, <laughs> I should have been. I should have said accessory. Yeah, that would have been way better. Yeah, you could say, uh, uh, I don't know, like a groin-oriented costume accessory. Uh, If we're talking talking podcast-friendly language here, a pelvic accessory. Yes. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Pelvic costume accessory. 
That's teamwork. You always bring back to the Merkin. I don't know how you do it. I don't <laughs> Every time. Well, I'm here for it. I yeah. Mean, yes, I... Yeah. You invited me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I apologize. You didn't know what you were getting yourself into. Oh, I'm thrilled, though. Is... But, I mean, crisis work is your work, so. Mm-hmm. Yes. No, I, I do my best work contemporaneously. Yeah. Same. I kind of want to go back. All right. I feel like we, we didn't quite hit that one. Yeah. Um, in talking about what are pressing needs that veterans currently have and how they aren't being met. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, veterans is such a huge heterogeneous group mm-hmm. that, that it's difficult to even attack that question, but I will do my best. No pressure. <laughs> Actually, do you want to break down the heterogeneous part? Yeah. Um, well, like if you could categorize or if you could break it down into smaller categories, how would you do it? I will break it down into the category of veteran who leaves the military and does not require any health care or care related to their time in the service versus those that do. Mm. Because a lot of folks, and, and so again, we're, we have to almost break it down by timeline even because some folks won't need care for 50 years, mm-hmm. you know? But let's let's start... We'll start at the separation, right, ETS, you leave the service, and you are either already have a diagnosis or have a mental health condition that you need help with. So there's that category, and then the category of people who get out and just go on with their lives, which is most of us. So, you know, when, when we say, like, veterans, you know, it's not, it's not like all veterans come back with PTS or come back with mental health issues or require VA services. I mean, again, most of us just go on with our lives and have a normal, fine, regular transition and don't have any issues. The ones that have difficulty are the ones that I think we're more interested in for the purposes of this question. And it starts probably at separation. So when I left the Army in 2016, uh, we were required to complete a course called SFL-TAP, Soldier for Life Transition Assistance Program. It was a couple weeks long, you know, had some stuff about writing resumes, how to access your GI Bill benefits, and you know, it was a really good class. But I didn't make the most of it. Because, you know, kind of, again, kind of tying back into questions earlier, you know, what did, how do you even know that you need help? You know, I thought, I'm fine. I don't need any of this help. I, was, I, I had a little bit of life experience before I joined the Army. I joined late at like 23. Um, I know how to do this. I don't, I don't need to worry about this. I don't need to figure out how to register with the VA. I don't even care. I'm just on my way out. And that's part of the trauma. I was just ready to be done with all of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, not that you could like a clockwork orange style people in these classes and just make them watch it, but some way to more, to better express to these kids and young men and women that are getting out how important this stuff is and how if you don't feel like you are you know at a hundred percent where to seek help now before mm-hmm. you're out again I was command mandated to do all that stuff because my, my, my boss we, we were a four-person team in El Salvador my boss actually died on the 4th of July of 2015 mm-hmm. um, not traumatically it was a medical issue but you know from there my performance just dropped incredibly and it was noticed by my bosses and when I say I was lucky I absolutely was because I was in a tiny little unit and they were like oh man Sergeant Adams you used to be like high-speed all-star we sent you on all these deployments back to back to back because we knew you could do this job and do it well 
and now you're like not showing up for work. Mm-hmm. Go to behavioral health. So I ended up getting a, a bunch of counseling, got a diagnosis before I even left the army. So I feel like what happened to me should happen to more people. Mm-hmm. So what, what can we do to help veterans more? I think we can get at them a little bit better while they're still active duty yeah. before they become veterans. I mean, we can get into specific, <laughs> we can't get into specific issues. We, we, we work a lot with the VA in North Chicago. You know, we provide some gift cards and stuff for some of their programs. So I'm acutely aware of some of the shortcomings that are going on there, and I cannot get into them. <laughs> well, and I think it's more of a, I think it's more of a general, right? Like, do you think that preventative services would be better? Like, as far as before you, or as part of, boot camp or as part of the enlistment process, there is something that you do. There's something that, right. Um, whether it be with your significant other or your family or whomever it may be, or do you think that, so that's prevention or postvention intervention, right? Like you were saying before you leave or both or neither, right? Like there's, there's so many conceptualizations about what you can do. Um, so just even just generals, you know, if you have any thoughts on any of those. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe everybody that's getting out has to just has to see a shrink. You know, maybe not, maybe not a psychiatrist, but, you know, pardon me if that's a pejorative term, but <laughs> um, it's, uh, yeah, I feel like there could be more aggressive post-screening. After, after we came back from deployments, again, I can speak about my time only. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a bunch of assessments basically to catalog our neurological function and this was for like brain injury and stuff but also it ties into the PTS I feel like if that were maybe expanded a little bit and again this is just Sergeant Adams who was just like nobody tiny little guy in the army I feel like maybe maybe if that were a little bit less of a check the box exercise at least where I was and a little bit more of an actual hey how you doing mm-hmm. you know instead of just everybody in line up on the computer take your test everybody mm-hmm. get out we'll let you know if there's any discrepancies and I understand the difficulty inherent in that because there's so many people, but um, I don't know. There needs to be a way to de-bureaucratize it, if that makes sense. It's a great word. (laughs) Make it a little bit more personal. It's absolutely not a word, but (laughs) it gets the point across. Mm -hmm. Um, But as for for reaching, I mean, once again, gosh, the, the veteran group is so heterogeneous that it's, you know, it's difficult to even say you know, we need to get be better at like explaining to people what services are, you know, there for them. Because what what's you know how social media billboards. I mean, I just I feel like the military is so good at creating soldiers. They're so good at it. They do their job very well, and so I feel like the same organization that can create what they need can also return some of that back to them when they're done. Kind of like a reverse boot camp? Yes, I've been talking about reverse boot camp a lot. Fascinating idea. I have no idea what that would look like. I have <laughs> no idea either, but it sounds so great to it sounds, me. It sounds like a party. Oh <laughs> my I mean, gosh. If, like... it is, if it's truly the opposite of boot camp, it's nothing but, okay, so flip-flops and get up whenever you're back. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. Um, I but... mean, it's almost like like a return to what I guess it would have to be like take the taking of boot camp itself 
and the different phases of boot camp, and then figuring out, okay, so what was the end goal of that phase? And what did, what were you supposed to learn from that? And then like connecting that with the part of the civilian world that you lost. Right. And so I, I think I understand what you're saying. Like taking that as free to core and kind of mindset of team first and figuring out how to apply it in a way that is meaningful in your post-military career. Okay. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, if only we could push a button and just undo the conditioning and all that stuff. I don't know what it would look like, but... I don't I hope, either. I hope you figure it out. That's my goal. Like, just, just <laughs> hang out in this beautiful paradise. Yeah, no northern installations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, on, on boot camp. Yeah. That sounds fantastic. Become a Z-Center Survivor Superhero today. Superheroes are committed to ending sexual violence with ongoing gifts. Z-Center is committed to serving survivors through the pandemic and beyond. Your gift provides art therapy supplies, phone line access, self-care kits, and counseling to the resilient clients we serve. The Survivor Superhero Program ensures your participation in our daily mission with your monthly contribution. Your gifts have a lasting impact and make you a superhero our survivor clients need. Sign up at zcenter.org under the Donations tab. People that are in the military, that come out of the military, <clears throat> active duty and veterans, they there is this inherent gap because, right, you you are team first. And so how do you help? This is a question that I'm always asking is how do you help people who don't know about this better understand so that the military population doesn't feel so isolated or doesn't feel like they can't talk about these things or share these things? It starts with what we were talking about before is that that kind of like idolization of veterans needs to be taken down a couple notches. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that that is step one. Which, can we just talk about the fact that I did never knew that thanking a veteran for their service is actually inherently irritating to most veterans? It's not. I mean, I, I guess. I don't know. I don't find it irritating. I find it, you know, I appreciate the sentiment, but it's somewhat misguided. Yeah. Um, like, it's not like this, you know, because I, like, I used to do that all the time, thinking that this was, like, my way of, like, showing care for those people yeah and it's not again i can only speak for myself and the people yes. that i've talked to about it but you know it's not like offensive it's not like okay oh whatever you're sure it's fine it's just like okay <laughs> you know but, yeah but, and so it's you know but different people take it different ways i mean there's definitely a vet bros segment of the population that enjoys walking around wearing front style t-shirts and hats and saying hey check it out i was in but you know like, oh yeah for sure um that's, uh, I, I would say that's probably the minority. I didn't know that that was a term, Vet Bros. I'm yeah. totally going to use that. Yes. Oh, you know them. I do know yeah. them. I know, I know a bunch of them. <laughs> and that's, you know, that's, again, like I said, we're, we're a, a heterogeneous population. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I would say, uh, you know, saying thank you for your service is not necessarily something you should stop doing. Right. Uh, but, yeah, it's not, I don't know, it's complicated. It's, yeah. It's complicated. Um at least again, speaking personally, you know, I didn't, I didn't do what I did for either of you. I did it for me. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that I, I happened to put on a uniform and defend the country or whatever. I mean, I did those things for myself. 
No offense. <laughs> None taken. <laughs> no, but I think that's really a, that's really a powerful sentiment, though, right? Yeah, and I'm happy to have done it, but I didn't. You know, it's not about. It's not about being thanked. Yeah, like I didn't think about the 380 million of you. I was doing it because I wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I did, did, it was not a selfless act. Mm-hmm. I did it because it was something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you can thank me for it, but I didn't do it for you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, did, does that answer your question? So, uh, no, Sorry, it's, I it's totally, I, 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 yeah, I sidetracked you. No, too. that's okay. It's, it's a start. So, again, just kind of the, 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 the over-veneration of veterans, again, I feel like that puts up a harmful... Mm-hmm. I feel like we're at a point where it's harmful. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's not necessarily you don't you don't have to be your own little separate corner of society. Like reintegrate, you know, don't, it doesn't mean you have to forget or lose or not associate with other vets. But you know, you're, it's not what you are anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so bridging the gap, though. Um, Listen. I mean, this is basic stuff, right? Just mm-hmm. listening and being non-judgmental and understanding that not everybody comes from the background that you come from. You know, I deal with vets all the time who, you know, are thrilled when people say thanks for your service. But they were drafted, <laughs> right? A little different. You know, we, we do, we're in an all-volunteer force, but the, the, the guys that mm-hmm. had no choice but to show up or go to jail or go to Canada, those are the guys we should be thanking. Mm-hmm. They didn't yeah. have a choice. Um, yeah, so how do you bridge the gap approaching these difficult issues? Um, again, just being non-judgmental and listen. Don't be afraid to share your story. And that's really all I can do. Mm-hmm. Try to keep an open mind and learn. Figure out maybe, you know, folks from very different cultures, you know, how, how do you get by day to day? What do you consider, you know, a standard of living that you're fine with? never you can't even judge on the inside like oh man how can anybody live like this you gotta just be like hey here we are mm-hmm. you learn something from everybody mm-hmm. yeah and yeah knowing that the the military is a culture mm-hmm. that it is its own thing oh yeah it's certainly its own subculture but it doesn't take away where you came from right again veterans super heterogeneous are we noticing a theme here mm-hmm <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's hard to generalize. It really, it's it's hard to generalize, and I think it's it's doing people a disservice to generalize, mm-hmm. um, because again, we are a very diverse population. Yeah. Has COVID impacted support? Oh sure, of course it has. It's impacted everything. Um, now, keep in mind also, I haven't been working in the field for more than a year. Like my one year anniversary is coming up, so I only know the COVID world. Mm-hmm. Um, I can explain how we adapted. Okay. Yeah. So our, our center, our, our little office up in Gray's Lake, is actually designed like a coffee shop. It's, again, well, you know, we're not government. We've got a little front area with couches, TV, tables, you know. It's, it's designed to put people at ease. Mm-hmm. Nobody comes anymore. Mm. Everything's by phone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I started working, the drop-in center, as we call it, wasn't even open. It was just, sign was off, door was closed, weren't restocking coffee and stuff because nobody was coming in because COVID. So we adapted to do just about everything by phone. You know, we've got people sending us documentation of their service, you know, texting it to my cell phone so that mm-hmm. we can have it. Because, you know, nobody's a fax machine. People don't know how to scan, typically, the, the generation of folks that we're talking about working with. 
Uh, so we could you know, phone pictures, send to our phones, and then email it and print it and do our financial application with that, or our financial assistance application with that. Which does, you know, I feel like we've done a pretty good job maintaining our efficiency and keeping our operations up, but it's just less effective. You know, it's less effective. I feel like we're making less of an impact on people just because a voice over the phone is not quite the same as being able to look somebody in the eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, just isn't that's a, that was another reason that I was excited to come here and do this in person instead of over Zoom. It's just it's a whole different ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we've adapted to do everything that we did before, but digitally. What has really suffered is the outreach, mm-hmm. outreach and public events. You know, we used to run bingo down at the VA every couple weeks or so or you know just public event like our biggest fundraiser of the year is our, our rough march the rough march of lake county right um they are in years past it was always a big event you know where we got permits and marked out a route and had like vendors and stuff you know a big in-person like actual race and now we do it digitally mm-hmm. we just put up a site say hey you want to sign up we'll take your word for it that you did it 22 kilometers with 22 pounds and we'll send you a medal and a t-shirt mm-hmm. and you know what that's actually made us a lot more money <laughs> than, really? yes, than an in-person event. It's actually more effective, which is because it's easier, yeah. Yeah. right? It's easier for folks to participate. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we're doing it. Uh, <laughs> but I do look forward to, so basically like there are certain aspects of the adaptation that are never going to go away. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep this model for the rough march, but we are also going to have an in-person event mm-hmm. instead of just going back to the way it was. Um, so it is, from our point of view, it has slowed things down. It has made us a little bit less effective. Uh, but we find ways around it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as veteran care, like at the VA uh, facilities, um, you know, they're, they're doing the best they can. But obviously things are difficult. Like, and we're talking about veterans that are maybe itinerant or don't have homes. Um, it's difficult to find them a bed sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, pads is totally full because they're at reduced capacity. It's, I, I would say that is probably where the greatest challenge has been is trying to find beds for folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everyone, like, tonight. Um, just because, you know, everywhere is full and reduced capacity. But the VA overall has done a great job adapting. In my experience as a patient there, not just as a, as a caregiver, you know, that's where I get all my health care. A um, little rough in the beginning, but they came right around. That's saying something for such a large institution. It really is. And, you know, I I only have experience, again, at the Lovell Veterans <coughs> VA facility. Yeah. Lovell Federal Healthcare Center because it's split. FHCC. Mm-hmm. And you know what? It's, I've, I've had nothing but great care there. Nothing but awesome, like, outstanding care there. I'd point uh, one of our main goals when somebody, you know, comes to avail themselves of our services, regardless of what they need, is, hey, are you registered with the VA? I'm not saying that you need to go and apply for disability. I'm just saying take your paperwork down to the VA so that you're registered. Because I get calls all the time from people, oh, my dad's 90, he never registered with the VA, and now we need, like, end-of-life care. Mm-hmm. I'd love to help you, but you know what? You have your paperwork? No? Okay, well, you got to order that from the National Archives, and they're working at 10% reduced capacity right now, or 10% total capacity. Oh, wow. So, yeah, you're looking for end-of-life care for your dad who's a vet. I totally believe you. But the federal government doesn't take anything but a DD-214, which you have to get now from the National Archives, which is going to take a year and some change at least. Register at the VA, folks. <laughs> just just do it. Just do it. When you get out, take your, take your DD-214 to the nearest VA facility, get yourself registered, so that when you're 90, 
you're registered. <laughs> so the second takeaway is register for the VA. Well, Next right, takeaway. yeah. Well, <laughs> and just like experiences. <laughs> if you if you have a documented disability, that that service connection really does matter. That like the um, the disability rating really does matter, especially when you're talking about more towards end of life care or other things, because the VA does help with those things. And I think a lot of people don't know about that. Oh, the, the benefits available for like end of life care are pretty, pretty staggering. Uh, yeah. Unless you, especially if you are disabled, if you have a disability, mm-hmm. uh, but regardless, you know, whether you, whether you're fly, filing a claim or not, just please take yourself to the VA and get registered once you're out. Just, just be in the system. Mm-hmm. I know that you don't want anything to do with the government. You're done with this, but trust me, Somewhere down the line, you're going to be like, all of a sudden, my ears are ringing now or something. Yeah. You're going to be glad that you're already registered. Yeah. It breaks my heart having to tell people, like, sorry. Yeah. I mean, we've got our financial assistance that we can help you with to a very limited extent, but, man, you don't even have his discharge paperwork. There's literally nothing they can do for you. Yeah. You just got to have it. So... How has coronavirus impacted, I mean, the National Archives being at 10% mm-hmm. has been rough for people that are getting old and yeah. don't have their paperwork because they're trying to submit for another copy. And it's taking years, literally, like years just to get a copy of their discharge paperwork. It's it's heartbreaking. I had a, um, my great-grandfather passed away a couple years ago and um, I had to actually ask was it his post in like Maine or wherever, wherever he enlisted mm-hmm. had a copy or something, something, however that worked out. But I had to, yeah, ask for it from Maine yeah. and I just got really lucky mm-hmm. that they had copies of stuff mm-hmm. and they were able to like email it to me. And I was like, <laughs> you did get really lucky. Yes, I knew. And I knew it too. I was like, so I just emailed this person and they were like, yep, we gotcha. And I'm like, wow. Okay. We can talk about that actually. If there's a if there's a workaround to get DD214s that I'm unaware of, uh, mm-hmm. that does not involve the National Archives. I mean, if you can contact. I don't think I ever. Season. I think that's what I did. Okay, we'll talk. We'll talk offline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I I do not remember having anything to do with any National Archive. Okay. So. I think I just found some contact us pages and emailed, and it worked out for me. Hey, so. Okay. <laughs> that might work especially for like reserve or national guard units that have been around forever. You know, they probably still have all that paperwork for all their people that were. Anyway, like I said, we'll talk about. Oh, it God, I just the, uh, the amount of paperwork just like gives me like heart palpitations, <clears throat> like the physical paper like everywhere, I'm just crushing. Um. <laughs> uh. So yeah, adding on to that, how can family members, loved ones community members help with receiving the support i mean we talked about listening like active listening being active bystanders for things right but um i mean i can i can speak to being a spouse but um how can you what what suggestions do you have i would say just going into interactions with you know with a vet uh without making assumptions just make a clean slate you know like i said everybody's military experience is different and even folks you know that that didn't necessarily have the chance to you know deploy or whatever you know they they might be you know a little bit 
sensitive about that. So walking up to everybody that you see that's a vet or that you want to have an interaction with that's a vet and assuming that, okay, they went overseas, they did crazy stuff, whatever, and now they're, you know, a mess. You know, maybe they, maybe they didn't enjoy their time in the service. You know, maybe it's, you know, thank you for your service to them is a little bit triggering. Mm-hmm. Um, so just keeping an open mind and taking your cues from the person that you're interacting with more than thinking, I know what's going on in this person's head. They're a vet. I get them. Like, I understand it. We're all super different. Um, mm-hmm. So again, just keeping that open mind and making no assumptions, I think is probably the, the best advice I can give. You don't, you don't know what this veteran's, you know, perception of their time in the service was. You don't know what they did. You don't know how they feel about it. You don't know what the recovery's been like. So just listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's interesting. My husband loved being in the military and had an, a horrendous time in the military, mm-hmm. which is, it's, it's weird. Isn't it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like only he can like talk shit about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can't. Right. But it's also, he had this terrible time and all these bad things happened. Right. right? But like, it's it's just so interesting how there's this like love of something and this mistrust or 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 um, anger or frustration with something as well at the same time. There's like this this incongruence that I don't understand, but like makes perfect sense to him. That's a really good way of putting it. it, it so it's like so go. So any kind of any conversation I have, it's always like, I don't have to understand this. I don't have to understand this. I don't understand how he loves something and hates something at the same time. Like if I hate something, I hate something, and I let everybody know about it. Yeah, I have I have similar emotions. I don't think quite as strong as hate. Um, I have, I love using the word hate. Oh, uh, <laughs> you're entitled. <laughs> um, the uh, I didn't mean that in a bad way. No, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> Um, no, it's, again, speaking personally, the closest I can come to being able to describe this is, I like some of the things that the mil- being in the military did to me as a person. I like the way that it, you know, reinforced or perhaps taught me for the first time what real accountability is. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I like being part of that team. I miss the purity of purpose of waking up every morning in Afghanistan and knowing exactly what you're there to do and exactly why. Mm. But the other, like, 80% of it was just garbage. <laughs> yeah. Like, and that's not to say that, it was, you know, I was, I was very fortunate. I was in a really, I mean, I, I did not deal with 90% of the Army BS that a lot of people had to deal with, so I'm not complaining, but... Maybe I am a little bit, but yeah, the parts that are cool are super cool. The parts that are not are super not. Yeah. That idea of purity of purpose. I like, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to say the word envious, but like I will, I don't think I'll ever know what that is. That's what I miss. Like that waking up and, and, and you have one job. Like, you know, not like one task, but like one job. Like, this is your thing. You have to go do this thing. And just knowing what that is and it being so clear. Yeah. Because... I miss that most of all. The civilian world is is anything but clear. Right. And so, like, 
what is clarity like? Um, well, it depends on what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Often it's enjoyable. Sometimes it's, wow, I hate what I'm doing, but at least I know what it is. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's liberating in a way, giving up control. Mm-hmm. Not having to decide for yourself for a while. And then having, a, and then you come back or you go home wherever from wherever you're from and you have to be in control of everything right and i think that's inherently that's a very overly simplified way of describing where a huge transitional breakdown occurs i think oh yeah it's hard i mean and i imagine the longer you're in the harder it becomes you know i was in for six years i had a hard enough time with it i can't imagine what it's like to be in for 15 16 Mm -hmm. 12 you know yeah and then all of a sudden you're just doing your own thing. That's got to be tough in and of itself. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, you know, subculture. We've been talking about that a lot. It is its own subculture. And just like, you know, any other culture, when you leave it, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's definitely, the factors here are manifold. As we are exploring, the more we get into this conversation, it's, you know, it starts at the individual level of, oh, man, I can't, you know, I can't talk about how I'm feeling. I'm going to let the team down. And it's all the way up through the institutional level of just keep it together and go on the next mission because that's what we got to do. So it's this, like, self-reinforcing mess, (laughs) basically, that keeps troops from asking for help when they need it. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if there is a solution. I really don't. I mean, it's an institution that at its core is, you know, based on getting young men and women to sign on the dotted line and be willing to sacrifice their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, is there really time for feelings with that? Tricky question. Or is our job just to destroy the enemy, regardless? Mm-hmm. You know, how much of a, of a reduction in efficiency as a fighting force are we willing to lose to get people the help they need? Mm-hmm. You know, again... What's our job here? Are we actually here to help people or are we just furthering American foreign policy? It's hard. You know, it's, it's Sergeant Adams, again, you know, ground level guy. He's like, oh, it's so obvious. You know, we, we need to improve X, Y, Z. We got to get better at this. But you scale it up and you look at what they're actually there to do. And it's just not, it's not like it's, your job is to kill people or to support people to kill people, to enable other people to kill people. Why are we even talking about feelings? So there's a part of us that could, that, you know, that, that's, it's easy to go down that road too. It's just, it's there's nothing simple about that. I've thought about this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, should it even change? What, what decrease in lethality are we willing to accept? My first thought is, <clears throat> do we do we need the lethality if we're doing the work that we should be doing? questions don't get any easier <laughs> i mean i mean if we're if we're going if we're going back if we're going back to the idea of power and control mm-hmm. we use power and control because there is this inherent thought somewhere along the line potentially at the beginning of our our country's inception that we couldn't talk our way or negotiate our way or whatever our way through without force 
somehow. Somehow that got into our country's DNA. And now that's how we execute things. Oh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we can sit here and deconstruct the American psyche if you'd like. I don't disagree with you. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I would love to live in a world where we don't need an armed force that is capable of just widespread again massive lethality as we were talking about but mm-hmm. I hope we can get there I just don't believe that we are there yet mm-hmm. yeah. and so basically I think that our our takeaway from this is we need to support the people that do that until we mm-hmm. can get there yeah. yeah yeah and the guys that were breaking in I was a civil affairs medic you know so I was just doing feel good stuff I feel bad for the guys that were the trained killers Mm-hmm. You know, and then those are a lot of the guys that come through my door sometimes 20 years later saying, man, all of a sudden it clicks like what I did does not jive with, you know, this moral injury. The stuff that I did does not jive with my personal, you know, directional device, as it were, mm-hmm. my personal moral compass. And it takes time for that to sink in. And some folks never get that help. Mm-hmm. Which another plug for um, level FHCC is that they are top-notch in their research of moral injury and group work and so if there's anyone who needs help in that regard they have phenomenal groups that are changing lives yeah, daily I used, to, I used to participate in group there anything that we didn't ask yeah. um no i don't know how much you guys wanted to get into the whole afghanistan thing um we can talk about afghanistan if you want um but again, that's just my personal ramblings as to why, what happened, uh, um, I've had plenty of time to process that. If you want that, I would be happy to talk about it, but. Well, let's see where it goes. Yeah, Christine wants it. Christine wants okay. <laughs> Afghanistan. Afghanistan. So, how long has, you know, what we refer to as the Western world, been trying to shoehorn Afghanistan into our ideal of a nation state. Hundreds of years. A couple hundred years. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no kidding. I mean, all the all time. All time. Yes. Uh, so you know, going back all the way to like you know British colonialism, you know, the eighteen hundreds. Yeah. Didn't work. Russians. Ow. Us. Ow. Who's next? Afghanistan, when I was there, and I assume that this probably hasn't changed, um, you know, the folks in general, your average Afghan, does not identify as an Afghan. The buy-in for the government simply wasn't there. They would identify as, you know, a Tajik or Pashto, whatever their, their, their tribe or family affiliation happens to be. And for hundreds of years, we have been trying to make them into something besides that. Mm. Whereas they're just not willing to oblige. They're not interested in becoming a Western democracy on the whole, you know, for whatever reason. Maybe it's literacy rate. Maybe it's just they're okay doing what they're doing. But it's an inhospitable landscape filled with people that are not particularly interested in what we're selling for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. Now, in addition to that, the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, again, the state that we put in after we kicked the Taliban out of there, again, which has now been replaced by the Taliban, very clearly... You know, it was, it was corrupt. Corruption was a way of life over there. You build the kickbacks into your project, 
like models. You know, hey, okay, we're, we're getting ready to build this dorm. Don't forget 10% for XYZ in the leadership. Otherwise, this isn't going to go down. Which isn't all that far off from, like, the democracy that we're used to. No. Just throwing that out there. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks different. Well, it does. Um, but these soldiers, right? The ANA, ANP, Afghan Border Police, everybody, Afghan National Army, sorry, that's ANA, Afghan National Police, Afghan Border Police, Regional Police, Regional Militias, you know, we're asking them to safeguard this body politic with their lives when clearly the government doesn't have their back. I don't blame them. Mm-hmm. I trained those guys and I don't blame them. I mean, they disappeared because the politicos did not have them covered. They didn't buy into the government they were supposed to serve. Who would fight for that? Mm-hmm. So it was a failure. It was a failure of the government to win the buy-in of its people. That's all it was. And it's, uh, unfortunately, the aftermath is just kind of how wars seem to end. And the Taliban, of course, being the dog that caught the car. Mm-hmm. You know, how, how, you got a plan for governance. You got a plan to make all these, you know, you hear all these talking points from certain media outlets about, oh, we left all these weapons for the Taliban. Yeah, so what? First of all, we didn't leave them for the Taliban, obviously. We equipped the Afghan National Army with them, and they left them for the Taliban. Second of all, how are they going to maintain all this stuff? You know, it take, like we're talking about a nationwide army in a country that's pretty big. Do you think they're going to have parts for those four rangers? How are they going to keep their trucks running? Who's going to fly their helicopters? You know? Mm-hmm. And again, this is, I'm grateful for my army experience to, to understand logistics. Like, just how difficult it is to equip a force that is spread out across a country, whether it's your country or not. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. All that stuff's going to be inoperable within months. Well, and how can you... I mean, if you're, I keep going back to this idea of power and control, but the the reality is, is that this, the Taliban is able to rule with power and control. Oh yeah, of course. They're able to, but are they though? I mean, this is ineffective governance, right? Good governance, top down, same page. Mm-hmm. Here in Afghanistan, you know, you've got these little, whether or not the Taliban leadership, right, in Kabul... You know, says, hey, amnesty for X, Y, Z. You know, local leader 200 kilometers away, there's no oversight. Mm-mm. There is the, you know, I, I don't believe the Taliban have a code of, a uniform code of military justice. Like, not to my knowledge. You know, what, what keeps their fighters in line? Indoctrination. Right. But let's say somebody's indoctrinated a little bit too hard for the government's line. And they keep doing it. Mm-hmm. You know what? What consequences are there? Is there recourse? That's what I mean when I say they don't have. They, I don't believe they have operational control over their forces. I don't know how they could. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they don't have any money. So <laughs> these are problems. I mean, the, the the hard times in Afghanistan are just beginning. Yeah. You know, UNESCO I think put out a a warning that a million Afghan children are at risk of malnutrition, like now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it is sad news. Yeah. But again, this is how wars end. Yeah. 
I mean, was there like, are there similarities that you know? And I, I have baseline knowledge of Vietnam, but I don't know how. I mean, was this kind of what it looked like when? Took a bit longer. Got it. Took a bit longer. I mean, the re-education camps were real, but you know, the the North Vietnamese government had experienced government. You know, it, it was, and I, this is, I'm not an expert again in, in Vietnamese reconstruction and reunification after you know, yeah. South Vietnam took the fall of Saigon, but they understood what governance meant and they had the support of the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. and Russia. You know, so they had international aid coming in. The, 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 again, you know, we're talking Cold War, the, the communist powers were very interested in Vietnam not failing because, okay, communism here won. We got to make sure they stay propped up. Afghanistan has no such allies mm-hmm. at the moment, at least that I'm aware of. Yeah. Nobody's really pulling for the Taliban, at least overtly, even though we kind of got to. You know, I hope they figure it out because they're in charge now for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, it just sucks. <laughs> it sucks. It's yeah. It's bad. Um, well, and I think that there's this piece too that we just we are overstimulated with information. Mm. doesn't really matter if it's good information, bad information. <clears throat> we just get so much of it that I'm assuming back in 19-whatever that they only got what was on the nightly news. Mm. They couldn't look into, like, they couldn't Google Earth what was going on or like see what's happening or right. Like the way that we can now. So it's a blessing and a curse. Right. So it's like, we see every failure like just exploded. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, I fell down a serious rabbit hole, like as Afghanistan was falling of just doing nothing, but like YouTube, Al Jazeera, just watching Al Jazeera live and like reading stories for like a couple of days. I mean, it was not healthy for me, um, but yeah, you know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you think all that information overload was helpful? No, not for me. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was for somebody else, but it, all it became for me was a trap that I had a hard time pulling my eyes away from, and I just mm-hmm. got kept kept getting sadder and sadder. Right. Um, so no, I mean, I I think I weirdly enough, I think it was an experience that I needed to go through mm-hmm. but i don't think it was good for me got it <laughs> I, think, I think it was just something that i had to do and once i got past it i'm okay mm-hmm. but yeah know, that was part of the early reconciliation of you know, oh shit yeah we, we had we actually lost this war you know it's over yeah almost like the the understanding that there isn't a redemption period right. hmm. you know what were you even doing over there but that begs the question too you know, a question that even I couldn't have answered when I was over there. As one of the people that should have a good idea of what victory would look like, as somebody there to support good governance and prop up the civil institutions, I couldn't tell you what victory looked like. Like, what was our win condition in Afghanistan? What a great conversation we had. Thank yeah. you so much for coming in, Dean. This is, I think, a great conversation. Yeah, You're absolutely. <laughs> Thank you all for listening to this episode of 73 Seconds. For more information on how to support surviving your life, 
you can head on over to our website at zcenter.org. While there, be sure to learn more about how to become a survivor superhero. Join us in the fight to end sexual violence today.